Hello, and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9 a.m. or for our more traditional service at 11 a.m. We also stream full services live on our Facebook page. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. On our journey through the New Testament titles of the Messiah, we are today going to focus on one that we don't really pay much attention to as Christians, probably because it includes the title King of the Jews. And except for recognizing that that was the charge levied against Jesus that which hung over his head on the cross, or in this dialogue here from the Gospel account of John with Pilate, we don't spend a lot of time talking about that title, King of the Jews, but it's a very important messianic title. And it goes all the way back to the Old Testament in order for it to be so important. So if we went all the way back to 1 Samuel, which is God's precursor to 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. In 1st Samuel chapter 8, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. So Samuel is the prophet, but he is also kind of the head priest that is overseeing the worship life of Israel at this point in the Promised Land. This is before they have built the temple. And so he would travel around and he would provide worship and judgment and help the people as he could. But they've come to him and they said to him, you are old. Right? So rude. Not only are you old and your sons do not follow in your ways. Not only is he old, but then we're going to take a shot at his parenting skills. It's a little harsh, right? You are old and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us then a king to govern us like other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to govern us. Most of us would have stopped at, wait, what? I'm old? And my kids? You want to take, you want to go here? But no, Samuel could get past that. It was their insult to God. That they didn't understand that God is their king. Instead, they want a king they can see and they can hear like any other human being. They want a king that looks like the kings of the other nations around them, the king of the Amorites and the kings of the other Canaanite peoples that they have started to conquer. They want a king like that. Everybody else has a king. We want a king too. And so Samuel is so distressed at this, he goes to God and he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And so he tells Samuel, go back to my people and tell them what it really means to have a king. And as we are in a post-monarchical period of the United States of America, we can probably resonate with this. Samuel tells the people, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and of your 
vineyards and give it to his officers and courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. So God tried to warn the people that they didn't really want an earthly king. But sometimes you just can't convince people unless they try for themselves. And so it was that the people got their first king, a king that looked the part. Saul looked like a king. He was a head and shoulders above everybody else. He was well built. He was very powerful. When they looked at him, they went, that's a king. But he wasn't a good king. He had his own issues that were the downfall of his leadership. And then they got a king who didn't look like a king. They got David. And David, he was actually a good warrior, but he had his downfall with women, hundreds of them. And so David, too, failed to be the king in the path of God that God had been. And this will continue for them. Even though Solomon has great wisdom, he, too, inherits his father's propensity for hundreds of women. And then king after king after king will reign not only in the northern kingdom of Israel, but the southern kingdom of Judah. And king after king will fail God's people. Because none of them are God. Until finally God is incarnate in Jesus Christ and comes to return to the throne. Comes to reclaim the throne of Israel as the king of the Jews. Now, when this happens, it's God saying, I am more than just a God of the air or the heavens or the sky. I am more than just a God who is talking to you about a future reality. I am talking about my lordship here and now in your lives. And we are very fortunate in the United States of America. We have a government that blesses us in a multitude of ways. The fact that we can even be gathered to, together this morning in worship is a sign of that blessing as I have a multitude of friends who have come from other countries and parts of the world where they were persecuted and run out from being Christians. I have friends that have come from various places in Africa where they couldn't be Christians. I have a friend who has come from Pakistan where she could not be a Christian. And I even have a friend who made her way from North Korea into South Korea and then the United States. Not only was she a Christian, but how dare she claim she had a call to ministry. And so she had to flee to come here. They all came here where it was safe to be a Christian. And so we have the opportunity to even worship without fear right now because of the gifts of that protection from our government. But governments like monarchs and kings, they have their cost too, right? Anytime you write a tax check or you, know, you look at your income statement, my son has been talking for quite a few years now about his desire to open up a Roth IRA account. This is his part of the brain that he did not inherit from his mother. And so he's been very excited about that, but you have to legally earn $6,000 of taxable income. And then after you hit 6,000, you can open up a Roth account and you can put up to $6,000 in it. And so I said to him, I will make you a deal. At the time where you are of age to work and you can earn $6,000, if you put 3,000 into your Roth, I will match the three and then you will have six, but you have to put in half. And as he was processing this over the years, he got very excited. He says, this sounds like a good deal, right? I put in three, but I have six compounding interest from even before I turn 18, if we follow his time path. And so this is what he was thinking of. And then 
when he first had this conversation, he started to think of all the things that he could buy with his $3,000. But when he gets that first paycheck, he's going to realize that the government has taken out taxes. And so he's not going to come home with $6,000, but if he wants my three, he's still going to have to put his three in. And then he can figure out how to live with his 1,700. Right? Something like that. How is he going to do that? Because the government still takes their taxes, right? And the government invites our sons and daughters to be part of the military, just like the kings did in Israel. And if war comes and we don't have enough volunteers, then there is a draft, which my father was drafted in Vietnam. So we have experienced that in my family. We also know that they will invite our children to become part of their bureaucratic system to be uh, workers within the government so that it can function. I'm also the daughter of a bureaucrat. My, my son's father is a bureaucrat, and I did my time as a bureaucrat when I was in cemetery. In, cemetery, in seminary. <laughs> we did not bury Jesus. But we have all done that time. We have all been in service to the government because the government is a pervasive presence in our lives. And so when you start talking about Christ is king, when you start talking about having a monarch, there is something deep within the spirit of the American that goes, I was with you till you said king. And I understand this. We have a little bit of post-traumatic stress disorder with monarchs in this country. Started right about the time of 1776. We stopped being okay with monarchies. We had some very bad experience with Richard III. We have no desire to have a new monarch. We kind of like our representative democracy here. Our government structure seems to be more feasible to us than having a single monarch. And so there's something within us that goes, I'm all for all the other messianic titles, but king of the Jews is hard. And that's understandable. We live in a world where we have seen monarchs who were deployable. We have, we have seen monarchs who took advantage of their power, who taxed their people into poverty, who have reappropriated their lands and have taken from them to the point that they grew fat off the work of the people. And yet we are being called to serve a monarch who served and gave everything for his subjects. That's the difference in a divine monarch versus a human one. And Pilate is trying to figure out what kind of monarch Jesus is. You'll notice in the text that unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, the gospel account of John has this taking place before the Passover. There's a slightly different time frame in John. And so the chief priests will not go into Pilate's headquarters, his governor's palace, because one, he's Roman, Two, he's Gentile, and three, they would defile themselves and not be ritually pure and therefore could not partake in the Passover. And so they are outside, but they've already handed off Jesus. So Pilate has to go outside to talk to them, and he does. And he asks them, what accusation do you bring against this man? And their response is rather snippy. If he weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him here. But they don't levy a charge against him. They just tell him he's a criminal. Pilate does not want to be a part of their pawns and their play. And so he says, take him back and you judge him according to your law. But then they admit what's happening. We are not permitted to put anyone to death. They want him to receive the Roman death penalty. They want him to be crucified. And so Pilate then goes back into the headquarters and he has Jesus brought to him. And his opening volley to Jesus is, are you the king of the Jews? 
then Jesus wants to know, are you asking this because you want to know, or are you asking this because others have told you about me? Pilate, again, gets a little snippy. I'm not a Jew, am I? Your people brought you here. What is it that you've done? He wants to know what Jesus could have done to make the chief priests so angry. Jesus then replies in something that has often been mistranslated and misquoted. Jesus says, my kingdom is not from this world. Oftentimes we had it translated, my kingdom is not of this world. But Jesus isn't saying that his kingdom isn't here. What Jesus is saying is that the origin of his kingdom is heaven, is God. That the kingdom has come from heaven to earth, not that it's not here at all. In fact, Christianity believes in the cosmic lordship of Christ. We believe that when Christ was born, it inaugurated the kingdom of God. And it's been emerging and being built upon every generation and every disciple since then. The apostles carried on that work. And then the disciples that have come from them and continued on in the name of Jesus Christ have continued to build God's kingdom here. But unlike earthly kings, their entire authority is generated on earth and their kingdom is only here. And when this world passes away, so will they and their kingdoms. But Christ's kingdom will never pass away. And so the difference here is that when Pilate is asking Jesus and Jesus defends his lordship and his kingship by saying that if my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting for me. But fighting to overthrow through physical violence is not the way of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus has already told them to put down their swords. But here Pilate says, so you are a king. He recognizes what Jesus is saying. Jesus didn't deny that he was a king. He just said, I'm not a king like you know kings, which is of course true because we understand that Jesus is the incarnation of the living God. And Jesus says, you say that I am a king, and for this I was born. He came to testify to the truth. He came to bring truth into the world and to have this open access to God's divine wisdom. He came to give us a wisdom that says that we are loved, that we can be forgiven, and that God's grace is ours. He came to teach that and to live it out and then to give it to us to share with others. And that is what this good king has done for us. But then Pilate's last volley at Jesus is, what is truth? And you'll remember what the gospel account of John says, I am the way and the truth and the life, says Jesus. If you want the way and you want the eternal life, then I am your truth. My sacrifice, my lordship, my kingship is yours. Now, sometimes we try to soften the monarchy in Jesus. We try to make it a little easier. We hear king of kings, but we also kind of default to lord of lords, right? But if you follow feudalism, especially in medieval Europe, you'll know that a lord is below a king. And so it doesn't matter how we try to change the language. We have to confront the fact that Christ is saying, I am king. I should be the one who reigns over your life. And it should have an intent, it should have a purpose, it should be fulfilled here on earth. It's not just something where inwardly Christ is your king and the world continues as the world is. Instead, because we believe that Christ is our king, that then ourselves and our lives should be transformed. 
And that's the struggle for us. How do you live out the kingship of Christ? What does it look like? And this is where it gets difficult. Because just as we serve a God who had a multiplicity of revelation of God's self in the three persons of the Trinity, we serve a monarch who allows for a multiplicity of revelation of how he is king and his people. Some of us live out our lordship with Christ and our kingship in Jesus with the way in which we build the kingdom, make new disciples, and continue to honor and glorify him. Some of us are making disciples through our mission work and the way in which we follow what our king demanded, that we will feed the hungry, give the thirsty something to drink, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, visit the sick and the imprisoned, that we follow his word as edict. Some of us are still trying to figure out what our job as kingdom builder is. What does it look like to serve Jesus Christ? And for each of us, there may be a slight nuance to it so that we are not all the same. The Apostle Paul had early Christians wrestling with this when he wrote to one of the Christian communities that he was a part of and said to them, not everyone has the same gifts. And so they serve in a diversity of ways. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are preachers. Some of you are doers. Some of you are prayers. Some of you have the ability to exhort and encourage, and others of you have the gift of leadership and accountability. All of these are necessary. All of these are part of serving our king. And it is a struggle. And even now, as I said on the Board of Ordained Ministry, there are those who have trouble articulating the kingship of Christ. Now, maybe this is something that here in America, because again of that PTSD of the monarch, that we have to wrestle with, you know, that we're using this word. Now, all words and all metaphors fall short of the glory of God, but what is the truth behind the title, King of the Jews? The truth is that God's people were meant to have God as a leader, and that any earthly leadership was meant to constantly defer to God's will and lead God's people back to God, not to take power and authority for themselves and divert attention from God, but instead bring all the people together. This is the image that is fulfilled in the final depiction in the book of Revelation, where the kingdom of God comes down like the capstone upon all the building that has been done throughout the ages, and Christ on the throne descending. And then the city of God is now here on earth and all the gates, three on each side of the city, are open all the time. And all people stream through those gates. All people are given equal, unfettered access to God. That's the image that is guiding our building. What are we doing with our faith that we are helping people to find the path that leads to that city? What are we doing with our words and our deeds, our relationships that helps people follow Christ into the holy city of Jerusalem, the place where there is no mourning or crying or sin or death, the place where no longer people have to feel inequality but feel eternal equity because God loves us that equally. That's the struggle for us. And Pilate didn't understand how he was being manipulated. Pilate was being used, but Pilate also saw an opportunity to once more step upon the people who were known as the Jews. That's why he put the title King of the Jews above Jesus. There was only one crime for which Jesus could be 
crucified in the Roman Empire, and that is being a threat to Rome. Now, he obviously hadn't led a violent revolution like Barabbas. Pilate would have known of Jesus if he had. But instead, the charge that they are bringing against him as the high priesthood is that this man thinks that he is above Rome. This man thinks that he is the monarch who can overthrow Rome. Jesus doesn't have to overthrow Rome. Rome is going to overthrow itself in a few hundred years. But also, Jesus is not threatened by the Roman Empire. Jesus knows that his kingdom will far outlast Rome. Jesus knows that his followers will not be subdued by the Roman Empire. And they can destroy the temple in 70 AD, and yet Christ will still reign. And that is the difference between our king and an earthly king. The one who calls himself emperor in Rome will lose his throne. But when Christ was born as Jesus of Nazareth, Christ came to us to reclaim the throne that God's people in their sinful desire to be like everybody else wrenched out of God's hands. We want a king that we choose. We want a king that looks like us, that sounds like us, you know, just a little better. But we want that king. We want a king that we can see ourselves in. And yes, they got those kings. They got kings who sin just like they do, but on a grander scale. They got kings who fall short of the glory of God just like they do, but with epic failure. They got exactly what they asked for. But they didn't even realize that that's not what they wanted, really. Do you want a leader who's going to fail you and take your land and take your tax money and take your children and conscript them into their service? No. You want a king that is going to serve you, that is going to give you the one thing that you cannot buy, which is forgiveness, is going to give you a love that will not only support you when you fail, but mean that you will never have to be nailed to your cross. That's the king that we serve. And when we use the title King of the Jews, we're reminding the world that the Messiah came to reclaim his kingdom and to bring it to us in a way that the world will never again destroy. Now, certainly there are times where it feels like the world has torn down what we have built. I think a lot of us felt that the pandemic really started to break down what we had built, not only as the Christian kingdom, but also as a denomination in a local church. I think we felt that pain. But Christ says, just because you don't see it doesn't mean my kingdom isn't here. Just because you feel that the earth is responding negatively to what you build doesn't mean that I will let it be torn asunder. We serve a king who says, that temple, you can tear it down and in three days I will rebuild it. And so Christ promised us, that when we serve him and when we recognize his kingship, that what we do will never be truly destroyed. Amen. But we are also building kingdoms within. We are building kingdoms of the mind. We are building kingdoms of the heart. We are building kingdoms for Christ here. And he will bring them all together on that day when he returns in triumph. And our duty now is to make sure that each day we are mindful 
who it is that we are going to serve this day. Are we going to serve earthly powers? Are we going to serve the eternal power of Christ our King? May we have the courage and the conviction to live each day knowing that you will never falter or fail with this King on the throne. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.